Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast, episode 82, the one about the four-word rule to measure success, PowerPoint cameo, Zoom apps, and the film Sea of Love. Let's get on with the show. Well, hello and welcome to another recording of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. We are back with more news, tech content, and wisdom for the world of marketing. Joining me, a man on a mission to keep marketing simple, the host of the Rogdorf Video Series and the author of Cat's Matter Marketing Plans, I give you Monsieur Roger Edwards. Oh, thank you so much. And of course, I'm joined by a man who's also on a mission to demystify digital marketing. He's the host of the Content Marketing Studio Video Podcast. Please welcome Monsieur Pascal Fintoni. Well, thank you very much, Roger. And listen to everyone, I know that these are tough times. We're all battling against climate, um, strange climate conditions, um, hay fever, COVID, broadband going down, noise outside. Roger, you've got someone doing gardening. I've got a pigeon who's just being very amorous <laughs> on a tree near my, my window. And, you know, people, this is a tough summer to, to get through. You know, we, we understand that. So we're going to do our very best to give you information and light entertainment in equal measures. And this is episode 82, Pascal. And today, today, we're going to be talking about one of my favorite films of all time. And do you know what? For once, it isn't sci-fi. It isn't fantasy. It's just a good old-fashioned police procedural drama with an edge. Yes, you're helping us actually transition from the 80s to the 90s with, with your selection, but more about it in our final segment. We're going to begin, as we've done for 82 episodes, thanks for the reminder, Roger, with In The News. Nielsen's first ever ROI report has found that channels like podcast ads, influencer marketing and branded content overperformed in brand recall. Well, Amazon has launched its first micro-mobility hub in London with staff riding e-cargo bikes to customers' homes and offices in central London. And this is one of the first steps towards Amazon's net zero carbon targets. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is now inviting applications from podcast creators who would like to join the LinkedIn Presents audio series with already 12 podcast shows available. Okay, well, according to a survey by US agency Leadferno, Roger, around 37 respondents said they preferred text messaging. 30% said phone calls, 19% selected emails, and 12% chose direct messages from WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger, and others. The Financial Times recently reported that TikTok abandoned plans to expand its live shopping in Europe and the US after its UK program was hit by internal problems, including staff walking out over working conditions. Wow. Well, there has been a 40% growth in pickup drop-off points in the EU and the UK since mid-2019. Initially, due to the global pandemic, it is now due to the high price of car fuel. UK TV and radio host Chris Evans has revealed that 90s entertainment show TFI Friday is making a comeback, but it will not return to Channel 4. Instead, he will be live streaming the beloved chat show. And Reddit has launched its first US TV campaign coined Find Your People. It is all about showcasing Reddit as a space for everyone to connect with real people with similar interests, according to Reddit CMO Roxy Young. Roxy Young sounds now, like an 80s pop star. <laughs> it does, it does a bit. We'll have to ask him how he feels about it or <laughs> she. Um, quickly, Chris Evans coming back with TFI Friday, but live streaming. And to begin with, I absolutely adored this program. It was like the best which started the weekend, wasn't it? 
He is a bit Marmite, isn't he? Lots of people love him to bits and other people really dislike him. I remember uh, quite a lot of controversy when he took over the, um, the, the Radio 2 early morning breakfast show. But I have to say that TFI Friday was one of his better shows, I think. It, was, it just had that perfect blend, didn't it, of humour and interviews, etc., and he was getting some pretty high-profile celebrities mm. from the world of music and and cinema. I remember, you know, being absolutely aghast when he managed to interview Jackie Chan, one of my action <laughs> heroes on on the show as well. But I think just fascinating about him thinking, you know what? We've I've tried to get back in touch with the producers, you know, of TV and so on. They're not kind of listening, or maybe I feel like a new challenge. And I'm going to go live on the internet and social media. So, yeah, I look forward to see what it's going to do with that. But I wanted to kind of quickly talk to you about the news regarding TikTok mm. and their work in the UK. I mean, we, we, we hear a lot about international brands who are having challenges with regard to local cultures, work practices, and so on. But this is also a marketing and reputation management nightmare, is it not? TikTok's a funny brand, isn't it? You you hear quite a lot of negative stuff about them in the media. I mean, it's only a couple of weeks ago that I'm sure that there was some American, uh, even like uh, federal agency, calling for TikTok to be banned because of its links to China and the fact that they seem to be harvesting everybody's data. But you know. We're in, we're, I think that the pandemic has shone a spotlight onto working conditions and, and you know, this whole work-life balance, should you work from home, should you go back into the office? And working conditions is becoming more and more important to a lot of people. And, and we know that a lot of these big multinational companies are often getting criticised for the working conditions of their employees. I mean, Amazon is often, you know, in the spotlight again for that sort of thing. So it, it, it doesn't really surprise me. And, and these businesses are going to have to get their act together on these things because let's face it they're not exactly strapped for cash are they um and and surely a little bit of money to make the working conditions of their staff better ultimately will help them to progress as a brand and a good place to let to work i think for me it's more the realization that nothing must just change with regard to on occasion that the mishap of management from the 80s because globalization started really around the 80s where uh, you know US companies would come for the first time into the UK for example and vice versa I've heard of UK companies trying to get into the African continent and having to understand again the um, the culture the routines the etiquette of work and so on I think I'm just a bit disappointed that in 2022 organizations will spend the, the money as you put uh, suggested to a bit of education of themselves mm -hmm. because i'd imagine well we know because i kind of read the article from the financial times these were the um kind of us and you know this international team leaders who essentially managed to upset the staff and they walked out they even managed to upset influencers working on tiktok who walked out as well so i think they just need to be careful and where the financial times article was kind of also hinting at is that the manner in which also they dealt with the the bad news was was very poor so they've got to be very very careful i wanted to because i feel like i'm in a kind of advisory mode at the moment or mood <laughs> should i say so I wanted to kind of pick up on the 40% growth in pickup and drop of points in the EU and UK. 
and literally address our viewers and listeners who are in a kind of B2C e-commerce product-based kind of undertaking to really, really pay attention about this idea of building that customer experience, that customer journey, but thinking about your strategy around pickup and drop-off points. If people are ordering goods online, um, they may not want to come to your premises or necessarily may not want to be using, uh, you know, the the couriers that you, you're using currently. So for me, it's it's good news so long as you take the hint and act accordingly. Yeah, I think the service has got to be spot on, hasn't it? But you know, I, I, I myself have found myself drifting into using this sort of service. I mean, there's drop off points in the UK at most. Uh, petrol stations these days and uh, I, I've recently been selling some old tech I sold an old iPad I sold an old, old my, uh, mobile phone to a company called Music Magpie and and literally you can just go along to the local garage they send you an email with a QR code in it you scan the QR code in the garage it prints you a label you put the label on the um, parcel and you just leave it in the garage and somebody from some courier firm somewhere will arrive and pick it up and take it away and, and it's very convenient isn't it? You know, I don't have to drive five miles to Asda, where the, the nearest post office is. So yeah, it's good for me. I'm saving money on exorbitant fuel, uh, and presumably I'm doing the, the environment some good as well. Except, of course, I've called out a guy driving uh, a, a white van, which is probably belching out diesel fumes. So maybe give and take. <laughs> No, but for me, it's all to do with what we're going through currently. And this also little hint about mass selection with regard to content spotlights and more. So I think whether you're working B2C and B2B, our role this summer, can we go back through the customer journey? Can we literally itemize it to then humanize it very importantly? And where can we add the element of convenience? Where can we almost add the element of surprise in what we do and how we do it? Talking of surprise... Litferno did a survey. 37% say they prefer to be contacted by via text. I was surprised by that figure. Interesting, though. I had my car serviced over the last few days, and I did the check-in online so that I didn't have to queue up when I got to the garage. And it gave me the option as to how to be contacted during the day if they had any um, issues that they wanted to discuss. And I actually chose text messaging completely unconsciously but that's a coincidence that you've brought that up today i went for text yeah and that, that figure whilst this is a u.s agents lead ferno um it's true crossing you know, on the eu I've, I've seen that uh, kind of mirrored by other services as well and i'm wondering whether a let's be careful because i think you've used that expression before on the show marketers spoil everything mm -hmm. so this is not a call from roger and i for you to all bombard your customers <laughs> with text messages it's just interesting that is it about giving the option and to, to begin with i'm sure that, that, that that's a yes but also is it possible that for you for me for the the 37 of people that responded is it because text messaging is within a calmer environment compared to WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger and all the others, and the inbox as well, for that matter? Yeah, absolutely. So listen, very, very quickly before we move on to our next segment, Roger, you mentioned about LinkedIn Podcast Network doing a call-out. So what we're going to do is make sure we put the link in the show notes for any of you to literally subscribe. I mean, we've 
as you can imagine, put down the details of Two Geeks and Martin podcast to be considered as an addition to the LinkedIn podcast network. Now, bear in mind that my track record is two years before I got a yes to go live on LinkedIn. Uh, maybe should have done it instead because I think this could be um, a very, very long wait. But why not? I think it's a good thing for them to do. Right. Hope you don't mind, but we're going to slow things down, everyone, with our next segment, The Content Spotlights. Now, every week, Roger and I look for a content to share with you to help us make sense what it means to be a marketer and a business owner in today's economy. So what have we got for us this week, Roger? This week, I've got an article, Pascal. It's one of my um, simple articles, actually. You're not going to get a deep dive here, but you are going to get some interesting little tips. Now, the article is written by a lady called Sandy Rittenhouse. What a great name, that, Rittenhouse. Um, great for people who are, are actually writing articles. And it's best practices for making awesome PowerPoint slides. Now, I nearly passed this one by because, as you know, I'm not a massive fan of death by PowerPoint. And let's face it, who is a massive fan of death by PowerPoint? You know, sometimes you turn up to a presentation and you're sitting at the back and somebody has a slide with millions of bullet points on it. In, in a font so small you can't read it you know you'd actually wonder what they're actually thinking i've always been a fan of minimalism when it comes to slides but i did have a look through the article and whilst a lot of the stuff in it is pretty sort of powerpoint slides 101 i would ex i would I would explain there's a couple of things towards the end of the article which i thought oh that's interesting i've never seen it expressed like that before so that's why i decided to choose this um article now it goes into some really basic stuff like choosing the fonts that you might want to use in your PowerPoint slides. Now, I have to say, I've not really thought about that before. Now, obviously, when I was working in big corporate, uh, the marketing team had actually agreed what the fonts were in the PowerPoint slides, and I think it was um, Open Sans or something like that. So it never really occurred to me that, you know, you have to be selective with what you do. But of course, what she's what Sandy is talking about here is the difference between serifed fonts and sans-serif serif fonts. Gosh, that's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? And her recommendation is actually don't use serifed fonts like Times Roman or Garamond or Georgia because those little extra tags on the end of letters, the further away from the stage you get, the further away from the screen you get, they actually start to become a bit blurry and it makes it harder for people to see. So the recommendation is to use sans-serif fonts, which are a lot easier to see for the audience then she starts going on about the colors of the slides and i have to say that again this is one of those ones that you probably don't think about especially if you're working in a corporate where they've given you a template to use but how many times have you been to an event and somebody's put slides up and the color of the background of the slide clashes with the color of the text. You know, you might have a green background and red text or orange text. And that's hard to see at the best of times, but in poor lighting conditions or if you've got color blindness or something like that, it can really make the uh, slides really, really difficult to see. So again, she's got a few examples of how to match the colors to make it work for the audience. Now, obviously within PowerPoint, there are all sorts of different suggestions. Um, in the more modern versions of PowerPoint, it will help you to make that decision. But again, it's one of those things, Pascal, isn't it? I just don't really think about that. Is it clashing with um, what's happening? Um, <clears throat> 
to to the audience the, the third thing she's talking about is and gosh i was guilty of this in the earlier days don't overuse animations and effects now of course i can remember when i first got my hands on powerpoint 20 or 30 years ago every transition i was using maybe even a random transition so sometimes it would wipe sometimes it would reveal sometimes it would spin and then you might get really excited when you're putting the slideshow together but believe me the audience is just sitting there rolling their eyes it reminded me of a of a presentation i went to a long time ago by this guy who was a little bit of a um a hesitant presenter at the best of times and i guess he'd hidden behind some of these animations and effects almost to give him that extra little bit of a crutch or an extra little bit of confidence. And he'd even put in sound effects with some of his transitions as well. And oh, for what right. for uh, yeah, I can I can you can tell you can see where this is going, Pascal, can't you? And and what what was also happening was that there was some sort of delay ha happening within the audio of the um, slide as well. So what would happen is he would press the button to advance the slide, and the slide would do whatever it was doing, white reveal star whatever and then literally about a second later it would go or or whatever the noise was but by then he'd already started to make his next point and as soon as he opened his mouth and started talking he had this sound effect sort of tripped him up and this happened pretty much on every single slide and by the end of the presentation people in the audience were just really getting very either very nervous for him very annoyed for him or were just sitting there laughing at him so my advice and, and, and sandy's advice in the article is minimal minimalism or don't use them at all you don't really need a slide transition maybe cross dissolve is fine but you know just a, one to the next click is is absolutely fine as well and then the final section uh, and this is the these are these these she calls them standard presentation rules now i've never come across these before and sandy describes these rules as follows she's got the 10 20 30 rule have you ever heard of this pascal i don't it, think so no no it says have no more than 10 slides for a presentation no longer than 20 minutes and a font size no smaller than 30. So 10 slides, 20 minutes, 30 points, 30 um, font size points. Never heard that before. Don't know whether it's based upon anything scientific, but actually it probably makes makes a bit of sense, doesn't it? 20, min 20 minutes, 10 slides. Yeah, I can get my head around that. Then the next rule is the five by five rule. Have no more than five words per line and five lines per slide. Now, actually, I would probably change that to the one by one rule. You know, have, have no more than one word and, and on, on one line because I'm a massive fan of slides, which are just pictures with maybe one or two words. But yeah, I think I think that we could probably live with that. Um, and the final one, the seven by seven rule. And again, I've never heard of this one. Have no more than seven words per line and seven lines per slide. Now that sort of contradicts a little bit with the one earlier on, but I guess it depends upon the environment that you're in and the size of the room. So the one that I just think stood out for me there and and i'm going to do a bit more research afterwards to find out whether this is based upon anything psychological but the 10 20 30 rule so 10 slides 20 minutes font size of 30 sounds pretty pretty convincing to me so nice little article some great tips that you might think are absolutely obvious but i bet you haven't thought of them thank you sandy rittenhouse 
and thank you to you for selecting it. I mean, I think this deserves a virtual round of applause. I can never tire to listen, watch, and read um, information about PowerPoint. I am a huge fan of what it can do to support your activities as a speaker, as a trainer, as a coach, and so on. And and listening to what you just said, I couldn't help but be taken to the world of video editing that mm. you and I know very, very well. Particularly the transitions, you know, all, all the software, no matter which one you're using, they would offer you three, uh, 30, 40, 50 different transitions, which you will try, I suspect, when you first begin your life as a video editor. And then what do you do? You stick to crossfade and you stick to essentially dissolve, don't you? The, the two that she's mentioned. And yes, PowerPoint today, compared to what it was like five, 10 years ago, is actually really, really smart, but almost sometimes gives you too many options. Um, the For me, the, the, the kind of 10, 20, 30, I'm just thinking, I may have just by accident actually used that, but I'm so glad that she's kind of confirmed it, particularly within the training session. Mm -hmm. You know, you, mm -hmm. you explain something, and then there's a group exercise, group discussion, and then you do a wrap up. And I think that's about right. You know, 10 slides to explain maybe the, the wonders of SEO, the wonders of um, hosting a webinar. And then there's an exercise before we move on to the next module, 10, 20, 30. That's great. Um, like you, I'm not a big fan of text. Um, I know that people will do that in a copy from Word to PowerPoint. Um, I mean, okay, but please, please, please edit down to just a few words per lines um for me there was two two scenarios really one is i kept changing the way i would explain things so the text would never match what i was saying eventually and many years ago as you will know i was victim of ip theft to be quite honest with you so i stopped writing things on the slides so that people stole the slides then all they had were an, an image and a keyword and they didn't have all, all, all the narrative to to go with it. So, no, super excited. Well done, indeed. That's very, very good. So this week, Roger, I went for an, an article again, and this one is from Inc.com. It's a platform that you and I make reference to very often, and it's written by their tech columnist. It's called Jason Atten, or Aten, perhaps, will be the way to pronounce his surname. Let me give you the time. First, Google's CEO Sundar Pichai uses this four-word rule to measure success. So we're talking about measuring success. We're talking about Jason looking at Sundar Pichai and a recent presentation interview he gave at Stanford University for their View from the Top Speaker series. And I will say, whilst this is about Sundar Pichai's and his views, Jason's own kind of views and deliberations about the subject measuring success is also really worth reading, reading the article. So this business of measuring and rewarding success is at the heart of this conversation. And I think the time is interesting because we are still going through the kind of media review we are planning what we're going to be doing for the remainder of 2022 within the context of the challenges that we are all facing. And what Jason is kind of um, sharing via, obviously, Sundar Pichai is that you've got to be very, very careful about what you want the remainder of this year to look like. Because if you are measuring and rewarding your team or yourself, I would add, on outcomes, this could be tough because we are going to have to be a bit more inventive, potentially. We're going to have to try different things. We spoke a moment ago about the kind of pick-up, drop-off um, you know, stations. We talked about the marketing or, and reputation management, that kind of things. So what Jason is kind of warning people about is now is the time 
to be daring. Now is the time to take risk. And there will be things that will not work. But of course, if you only reward yourself or your staff on positive outcomes, then the risk is people are going to avoid being inventive. They may even be hesitant to pre present new ideas and so on. And what they could end up is that people played safe, safe sorry, and they could fall back on simply what has worked before, which, by the way, oddly, may be the reason why it's failing. So Jason then uh, picks a quote from Sundar Pichai's um, interview, where Sundar Pichai explained that his job is to encourage the company, I would imagine Google and by extension Alphabet, to take risks and innovate and be okay with failure. And here comes the four words, reward effort, not outcomes. Reward effort, not outcomes. Because ultimately, if you're trying to do something worthwhile, and that's Jason actually making that recommendation, you are going to fail a bunch of times anyway. And for me, this article that I would really encourage people to kind of follow through the, the show notes is really about this idea of mindset, but it's about culture. But actually, our occupation, our discipline, Roger, of marketing, it is about knowing what's working now, and you could argue continue, but we've got to experiment. We've got to explore what's around the corner. You know, we can't just wait for the competition to do it first, to show us that it's safe to do so, and then go ahead. And the only way you can do that, either as a solopreneur or as a team leader, is to acknowledge the effort that people put into trying new things and celebrate that, not just whether or not it has worked. This is really interesting because actually that, uh, that four-word phrase probably goes against conventional wisdom, doesn't it? I think there'll be a lot of people out there rolling their eyes at this point saying, no, 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 it's got to be all about outcomes because if it isn't about outcomes, you know, profitability, success, that sort of thing, then the company's a, a write-off, isn't it? But it is interesting that, you know, the, the CEO of one of the biggest, if not the biggest companies in the world is subscribing to that viewpoint i remember a long time ago being involved in a startup business and we had this mantra uh, recruit for attitude and train for skill and it was all about getting those people who were just absolutely spot on even if they didn't know anything about the industry we knew that we wanted the attitude we wanted the effort and we would train them in the industry going forward so yeah it works for me i think maybe you know to your point, the sentence should be reward effort, mm. not just outcomes or not outcomes only. You know, that mm. idea. because um, I, I actually understand and I can observe it and sit when someone knows, well, if I get this kind of outcomes, I get the praise, recognitions, and potentially financial rewards, then I'm going to continue. You know, there is absolutely no advantages or benefits for me to try something new with no track record, with no evidence that it's going to work, but at least, you know, what, what else is there to do? And when the market is changing as brutally and clearly as it is around disposable income, around climate change, around every, all the other pressures, sadly the war that still is continuing in the Ukraine and you've got supply issues, you've got all sorts of things going on, you've got to be looking at uh, options and alternatives. And those alternatives be, need to be explored for the very, very first time. And the outcomes would be, it's not working at all, it's working okay, or it's working superbly. 
but the effort by the team in terms of planning, thinking, and execution, I think needs to be recognized. And for me, it's also about, and if you're working on your own or as part of a very, very small business, and you're using this time of year to look back, don't just give yourself a hard time because things have not worked out. Actually also recognize and reward yourself for the effort you've put into in all those different activities. Absolutely right. Yeah, good, good article. Good article. Well, I did say I was in an advisory mood today, so I thought that would be, would be this. Well, listen, thank you again for your selection as well, Roger. Let's move on to one of my favorite segments, marketing tech and apps. So, Roger, what wonders from the interweb have you got for us this week? I'm sticking with presentations for a while, Pascal. I'm actually talking about PowerPoint again. Now, this is about video presentations. So, you know, when you're invited to speak at an online event, or it may just be that you're in a Teams meeting or a Zoom meeting with colleagues and you want to present some slides to them. Now, a while ago on um, Two Geeks in a Marketing podcast, I talked about Apple's keynote um, presentation software had just incorporated the ability to include a bit of live video into the slide. So you would create a window and whatever your webcam was looking at or whatever camera you have hooked up to your computer, that would appear within the slide and remarkably useful for putting together quick videos on the fly if you wanted. And I knew it wouldn't be long before PowerPoint caught up and did something similar and here it is it's called powerpoint cameo now it just appears in the um, toolbar and instead of insert clip art instead of insert shape or whatever it is you now just insert cameo and just like the apple version you can have squares you can have stars you can you can alter the size you can have them multi-layered you can flip the camera you can put borders around it it's all there and it works in exactly the same way and just as the Apple version allows you to record a video within Keynote, so now PowerPoint allows you to record your presentation within PowerPoint. So you could do a presentation to camera, include the slides, you could have words, you could have shapes, you could have photographs, whatever it is, and you can interact with them. And you can be really, really creative. So it's great that PowerPoint have caught up with this because I use PowerPoint, I don't use Keynote. I have Keynote on my iPad, but it's a bit fiddlier on there. However, it's a bit interesting. You mentioned earlier that it took you so long to get approved for a LinkedIn Live. Well, for whatever reason, Microsoft have decided to roll this out on a regional basis. And as you would expect, even though I've watched quite a lot of videos on YouTube explaining how to use this, it hasn't hit the UK yet. So I've watched a few videos. It looks really exciting. I can't wait to get my hands on it. But Apple, please, for goodness sake, give it to the rest of us now so that we can start playing with Cameo. Because some of those YouTube videos that I've been watching are about three months old now. So it's been out and about for a while. Now, the second one is a similar sort of idea, and I was watching um, a LinkedIn Live, funnily enough, um, given what you said before, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and this guy... His special effects on his LinkedIn Live were really interesting. He, he was moving himself around. He was putting himself into different parts of the screen. And you could tell that he was doing it as he was talking. And things would pop up. And I thought, well, this is either PowerPoint or um, Keynote with, with this live video. Or he's got something else. So I did a bit of research. And it came up with this really weird-sounding app. It's called, and I'm going to spell it first, is M M. -M 
H-M-M, like mm-hmm. Now, I do wonder, and if anybody from mm-hmm is watching this, did you nick this from the film Pulp Fiction? You know that bit where um, Samuel Jackson is eating the big kahuna burger just before he shoots the kids in the, in the opening scene, and he takes a bite of the uh, big kahuna burger, and he goes, mm-hmm, that's a tasty burger. And I've seen this, and it's mm-hmm. I wonder whether that's where it came from or whether I'm just completely and utterly so geekified that I'm seeing I'm seeing links in things that don't exist. But it gives you all these really weird, real wonderful tricks. It allows you, as I said, to move yourself around the screen and it's fully integrated with Zoom, Teams and all the usual um, meeting software. So you've really got a choice now. You've got things like PowerPoint Cameo for live video. You've got the Keynote version from Apple, and you've got mm hmm. You know what's fascinating is what once again you can talk about PowerPoint and all the things we can do with it forever, Roger. I'll be listening <laughs> intently and with great interest. I mean, just to add an into it, you remember many many months ago now we even introduced to find that PowerPoint, the online version, allows for transcriptions in different languages. Just remarkable. But with regard to mm-hmm, if that's how you pronounce it, I think I've got the, I've got the consonants the wrong way around on this one. I heard about it a while back, maybe when they were in beta version, and I must confess, I didn't get it. But I thought <laughs> worth a, a watching brief, but then forgot all about them, I must confess. So thank you very much for bringing them back to the fore because I would definitely be looking at it because like you, I'm always looking for the experience for the viewer, the listener, the learner, the you know, the client, the you know, the participant, you know, what can we do? And you and I are so so fond of video production, photography as well, that it is exactly what we should be doing. And that's of course the reason why we have this segment for others also to experiment. So I've mentioned just now that I'm always looking for ways to improve the online experience. Now I am, I am, sorry, a huge fan of Zoom. I think it's been obvious to, by, to all for quite some time now. And I'm, I'll be the first one to say, I don't subscribe to this business of Zoom fatigue. I just mm. don't think it exists. Mm. What there is, is crappy meetings fatigue or badly prepared <laughs> meetings fatigue or very boring training sessions fatigue. But Zoom can't be blamed. You know, It's, it's a bit like... If you've done a bad presentation, you blame PowerPoint, not the presenters. It's a bit daft, really. That said, you know the platform is is very simple. You know, I think there are others that can offer a bit more. So I had another look at the Zoom at App Marketplace and came across a couple of things that could actually is of great interest to me, but also to our viewers and listeners. So to begin with, with regard to the Zoom experience and and learning, as you will know, you can ask people to join different breakout rooms. You can kind of do that. Now, those breakout rooms essentially are just subsets of the Zoom interface. But there is an organization called WELO, spelled W-E-L-O, who have organized and created virtual and physical space. Just imagine that you can have a helicopter view of a, a space which will have rooms, you have maybe a lecture hall, you could have a garden, you could have a coffee shop, you could have all those things in kind of 3D modeling. And using your mouse, you can position your avatar into those different rooms that so happen to be the Zoom breakout rooms. So you can organize yourself in that visual kind of um, environment just to add interest, just to add essentially elements. We could say to somebody, um, for the session on the subject of 
using PowerPoint, go into the lecture hall. Roger is waiting for you. For people looking for tips on how to use, you know, the, um, the app, we're going to go. We're going to be in a bar. Click and go there. And I think it just adds to two things. You, the trainer, the organizer, show that you've given some thought to the experience, which I think can only do well for your reputation. But this element of surprise, element of delight for, for the audience. So that's kind of the first one. Zoom Wheelow to literally give a virtual presentation of your Zoom breakout room. And the next thing is around collaboration and working on documents and zoom have done an okay job with their new format of the whiteboard but i don't think it's going far enough compared to other platforms there is an organization called coda c-o-d-a who have linked with zoom to allow you to open up documents that you people can join in with, within zoom to write on and, and kind of collaborate on you can even organize some online voting you can even organize some q a sessions so any documents you can think of that can be created I suppose, by extension on things like Microsoft Office, they will exist in Coda and they can be synced and literally integrate within Zoom to allow for great collaborations. So then you can have a Willow type of virtual environment and a Coda type document that you can work on. And my prediction, Roger, is there's going to be more and more of those kind of options on things like PowerPoint and Zoom, because I don't think that online learning and online collaboration is going to go away at all. I mean, it was always there, but I think the global pandemic has encouraged people to be curious about it. They're doing it more, and it's an important part of my business, as you know. Yeah, no, I think that you're absolutely right. And, and and virtual events, especially, maybe not so much meetings. I mean, meetings are meetings, aren't they? But virtual events, you can really use some of these apps to make the experience awesome. so much better. Uh, you know, I, 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 I was on a Zoom call the other day and I saw the app button in the corner and pressed it. And when it popped up, I think, oh, wow, look at how many apps there are available now. So, yeah, these are really, really good additions to the, the Zoom app experience. And I've just said, mm -hmm, as you were talking uh -huh. as well, so mm -hmm. it's very clever. <laughs> <laughs> so the world over has been mentioning the app without realizing. But yeah, thanks again for the, for reminding me. I'd definitely be looking at that. As we've said many times before, none of this would be possible without the hard work and the vision of pioneers of the recent and distant past. It is time to move on to This Week in History. In 1922, telephone pioneer Alexander Graham Bell died. Two days later, every telephone in the US and Canada using the Bell switchboard system went silent for one minute in his memory. Oh, wow. Well, in 1940, Bugs Bunny, Warner Brothers cartoon character created by Tex Avery and Bob Givens, the people behind Looney Tunes and their melodies, first debuted in Wild Hair. In 1959, Plan 9 from Outer Space was released and it's considered to be one of the worst films ever made. And more recently, 2017, the Fortnite games released by Epic Games on PC, PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and Mac. The popular Battle Royale mode is free to play and can accommodate between two and a half to four million concurrent players at any one time. And of course, Fortnite is probably one of the best examples of a metaverse, isn't it? Um, given all this chat and uh, balani that we've got at the moment about metaverse and Web3, effectively, Fortnite Battle Royale is a make-believe world that between 2.5 and 4 million people can concurrently play in. I think what is interesting 
thing is you're absolutely right. For me, it's almost the best way for someone to understand the awful term metaverse, which, by the way, is also being used now in the French language. Think about the confusion out there. <laughs> and what has been fascinating, I mean, you are a Fortnite player. Mm -hmm. You are also a Fortnite winner. I mean, how many times have you won so far? Oh, goodness me. <laughs> probably not that often. I've probably only won about... 10 to 15 times but believe me believe you me it always feels good to be number one at the end of the game <laughs> you get like a special recognition a badge or something to wear in in on fortnite it just the screen freezes and it says um victory royale and and and, and you get the the chance to do a little dance and a little jig and it plays a music and there's all sort of fireworks go off but uh, apart from that no you just move on to the next game <laughs> I think that's terrible. You should be like, you know, your next avatar should have a little star on his or her chest and that kind of thing. <laughs> but back to your point about the metaverse, I mean, what has been fascinating to observe from something that was born out of a um, someone's vision, you know, about, about a game and collaborative game, it's now also become, of course, a, a world, an environment, a, a platform for advertising, for entertainment. So, I don't know whether you were playing when you know you had uh, movies being announced where the trailers were being played within the Fortnite. Um, you got an island, isn't it? Because I only played once and uh, I, I died very quickly. So, um, but <laughs> yeah, you know, you, yeah. you, so you, it's what's happening as well. Yeah, I mean, there's an Ariana Grande concert coming up within within the Fortnite metaverse, um, and they are always plugging different brands. I mean, in the current version of the game, um, right at the beginning, as you're flying over the island in what they call the battle bus, and you've obviously got to jump out of the battle bus at, at some point and, and dive down onto the um, island, as you start to go over the island in the battle bus, Darth Vader's shuttlecraft comes past you and, 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 and it sort of cruises around, it circles a bit, and then obviously there's some sort of random thing within the game and it decides to land on a particular part of the island. Uh, and, and if you can then choose to go and, and, and engage Darth Vader in battle, if you like. Now, I've tried that a few times and, and believe me, Darth Vader within Fortnite is just as formidable as Darth Vader is <laughs> in fantasy real life. Uh, and I was destroyed very quickly by his lightsaber. So I tend to look where Darth Vader's landing and go to the complete opposite end of the island and, and therefore manage to stay alive for a little bit longer. No, super. So no, I, I thank you for that. I think for people who are wondering about the um, the, the, the metaverse, just inquire about Fortnite. You know, understand? Yeah, I think it makes it understandable very, very quickly. A virtual environment where you go in, and there's a combination of of gaming as well as obviously um, in future, I would imagine shopping and that kind of things. Just for, for my part, I mean, the reason why the battle royale mode doesn't work for me is because I am more of a kind of an explorer as a, mm. as a gamer. Mm. You know, I, I would play uh, you know, games where you just take your time to explore uh, the land and solve mysteries and so on. So I was too busy admiring, you know, the, the <laughs> graphics and, and the, the, how exquisite the palm tree was until I got shut down by probably someone, you know, very, very young, you know. <laughs> Now, I was wanting to talk to you about Bugs Bunny. Um, mm. I, I, I cannot believe that it was 1940 when they did the first Bugs Bunny cartoon, but I don't know what it is about Looney Tunes and Merry Mel the Merry Melodies series. I mean, they are literally about five minutes long, aren't they, each of these cartoons? Maybe five, six minutes long. They're all, always incredibly funny. I've always found Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies funnier than the Disney 
short cartoons. I have to say, I prefer Bugs Bunny to Mickey Mouse. I prefer Daffy Duck to Donald Duck. I prefer uh, all the Merry Melodies and the, and the Warner Brothers cartoon characters. Roadrunner particularly, I think is absolutely hilarious. And some of that slapstick humour is actually quite violent. Um, and maybe some people might frown upon it today. But all the way through my entire life, watching a five-minute Warner Brothers cartoon can always raise a smile and lift your spirits. There's just something about them. It's the combination of that fast pace, beautiful animation, gorgeous colours, and usually quite an interesting um, little uh, bit of music as well. And there's just something about them. Five minutes of absolute joy. Yeah, and I think for me, it's the, the music and, and you know the, the what would be called the special effects or the sound effects, because they were using real instruments or real mm. items at the time, mm. and it was always matching superbly. But it's interesting about this first one, the wild hair, spelled H-A-R-E. Mm. Bugs Bunny was introduced actually as a, a bit of a naughty character, mm. you know, almost something that um, you had to get rid of, you know, as a as a as a rodent, I suppose, um, because as it was seen as a as a pest, and then very very quickly they switched it, and it became more more of a, of a hero and almost you know counteracting the Daffy Duck character as well. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah, so fun, so much fun. <laughs> now, I mean, if you remember, I certainly when I was in France going to the cinema, we always used to have cartoons before the main feature. Uh, and as soon as you heard the first few notes of Looney Tunes or Merry Melodies, you, you were just in, in heaven as a child. Absolutely. Listen, another very enjoyable trip down memory lane, but we've got to get back to the present with our creator's shout-outs. Okay, Roger, so who is under the spotlight this week? Okay, it's a podcast this week, um, Pascal. And I've been, as you know, I sort of had a massive clear out of podcasts a while back. I stopped listening to a lot of the podcasts that I've grown up on and tried to find different things. And I came across this one, which is called The Origin Story Podcast with Ian Dunt and Dorian Linsky. And it was a particular episode that grabbed my attention. Now, what they do is they 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 explore the origins of things so it could be a word now they did an episode uh, exploring the origin of the word or the term woke which is actually quite an interesting um, episode to listen to but this particular episode that they are looking at the origin of is the uh, the, the the conspiracy theory you know and we are absolutely surrounded by conspiracy theories you know that the the the, the the Twin Towers um, terrorist attack was actually orchestrated by the, U the US government rather than by terrorists or that the assassination of JFK was part of some sort of global Illuminati group that was sub looking to subject the world to uh, change. Or one of the current um, conspiracy theories is that COVID was actually something that Bill Gates um, invented so that he could inject everybody with um, vaccines, which included nanobots, which would take over your brain. And, and this podcast absolutely digs into the utter stupidity of some of these conspiracy theories, but also tries to help you to understand how and why 
they come about. And, and one of the most interesting things that I, I suppose did come out of it is that they talk a bit about Marilyn Monroe. Marilyn Monroe uh, famously um, found, found dead, um, quite young, very famous film star. And there are so many conspiracy theories surrounding that, that she was, you know, she had something to do with JFK and that she was murdered by the FBI or the CIA or this, that and the other. And one point that they do make is that when there's a conspiracy theory, it's usually always about somebody famous like JFK, like uh, Marilyn Monroe. If it was Joe Bloggs in the next street who died of a drug overdose, there wouldn't be any conspiracy theory about them. And that sort of tells you all that you need to know. I'm not going to tell you any more about it. It's about an hour and 15 minutes long. The podcast series itself is well worth digging into. There's some in, in extremely interesting subjects. But if you are interested at all in where these conspiracy theories come from and how they become part of the social network, the social environment that we live in today, then this is an absolutely fascinating hour and 15 minutes. Smashing. And I can only imagine as well that from a production point of view, it's going to be fascinating to also pick up how they've gone about mm. the recording, the editing, and the production. So yeah. thank you very much yeah. for this um, selection, Roger. So for me, it's it's a return in terms of uh, the, the shout out. And we're going to mention Ian Anderson Gray, live streaming coach, consultant, and speaker who is celebrating three years of video and audio uh, series. That's an incredible achievement. You just mentioned it very, very briefly, almost as a um, kind of, um, you know, throwaway comment on LinkedIn of thinking, hang on, you know, going back to celebrating effort, not just outcomes. Oh, yes, we know what we're doing here. We're linking things <laughs> very carefully on this show. I was thinking, this is huge. I mean, this is a huge undertaking. Three years of live streaming, the Confident Live show that is done on Facebook, on YouTube, on LinkedIn, and, and a few more. And I wanted to kind of mention that because we should always post for a moment and find those incredible milestones. And to celebrate, obviously, the three years of uh, audio and video production, he's also released a new live streaming toolkit. So go and have a look and on the link in the show notes, not, you know, in addition to capturing and, and catching up on these three years of audio production, you've also got that new toolkit to help you understand how to get started or how to maybe get to the next level with your live video production. And the reason why I wanted to kind of mention it in addition to the milestone is one thing that's really impressed me with Ian Anderson Gray over time. He always finds new ways and new hooks and approaches on this subject of live streaming, which I think is a credit to him. And this speaks very much to, again, his inventiveness and back to, of course, the content spotlight and the afraid to try new things out. Absolutely right. Now, I might be wrong, but I think that Ian is probably the first person to have been shouted out three times on Two Geeks in a Marketing Podcast. So just in the same way as you should get a badge in Fortnite every time you win, maybe we should cre create a three-star badge for Ian and get it sent out to him so that he can wear it with pride next time he's recording an episode. We should do that, yeah. Either a T-shirt or a mug and maybe a certificate of achievement <laughs> like you used to get at school. You know? <laughs> Thank you very much, Roger, again, for your selection today. Right. We mentioned it during the introduction. We are going to move on now to film marketing. 
No, I have to say, Roger, every time it is your turn to select a movie, you always impress and surprise me because you've gone for a movie released in, in 1989 in the US and 1990 in the rest of the world that has literally done the transition from the 80s to the 90s in terms of redefining what we mean by action hero and introduce, of course, the femme fatale genre. We are talking about Sea of Love, directed by Harold Becker, and let's watch the trailer together. I heard from one of you guys you caught a good one. Face down taxpayer, back of the head in his own bed. Your guy put an ad in the singles magazine, right? There's some psycho woman out there killing guys. Wanna know how we catch her? We put our own ad in. We set up dates with 30, 40, 50 of the ladies who answer. We take them out, some restaurant, some bar, get their prints on a wine glass. Bingo, she's dropped. I don't believe in wasting time on this kind of stuff. You know what you know and you go with it. You go with what? I believe in animal attraction. I believe in love at first sight. I believe in this. No offense, but you never did get her prince, did you? She's not the shooter. I have done some desperate, foolish things. You mean like being here with me? Um, You're a good man. Oh, Pacino. Pacino is just absolutely superb, isn't he? He's one of my favourite actors. Can I just say that I miss the voice from mm. those 90s and 80s trailer. The voice needs to come <laughs> back uh, because it was just part of the experience. You know, I mean, we, we're going to talk about the movie in a moment, but I just want to spend a moment on that trailer where talk about intrigue, talk about anticipation, but you have to have the voice. Yeah, although it's funny, isn't it? Because a few weeks ago, we talked about Empire Strikes Back and and I thought that um, Harrison Ford's voiceover for the trailer of Empire Strikes Back was way over the top. But I think in this instance, it actually works better and it adds to the, you know, the, the um, excitement of the trailer and, and genuinely makes you want to go and see the film. When you mentioned uh, that you selected Sea of Love and you'd begin the, the research exercise, I was literally projected back time <laughs> to France when we went to sit because um, Al Pacino was then and still is a huge, huge name. I mean, if if there was an what would be coined in Al Pacino's movies, you, you went to sit. But my memory was too it was twofold. The memory of the incredible relationship and chemistry between Al Pacino and John Goodman was just something that stayed with me. And the music, as well as the, I suppose, the, the, the landscape that is, the cityscape that is New York. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's a remarkable film from from the point of view, as you say, the the chemistry between the characters is incredible. As you say, Pacino and Goodman 
it, it's it's almost as if they've been working together for decades. They kept the chemistry between them, the way they bounce off each other, the way that they, they their lines fit in, and the the humor that they bring out of each other, and of course the the, the relationship between Al Pacino and Ellen Barkin in the film, uh, mm. the lovers in the film, eventually is is remarkable too. But I think what I would add to what you said there about the music as well is that. New York itself, the setting, New York itself, the city, is a character in this film. A lot of it's set at night. A lot of the film sort of reflects upon loneliness, you know, the loneliness of the alcoholic cop, the loneliness of the single person. And when they're wandering the streets of a dark film noir New York with that sort of throbbing jazz music playing mm. in the background, a bit of saxophone here, you know, it's so, so vibrant and so melancholy. And it really does make the city, to me, part of the character. It, the city becomes one of the actors, if if that doesn't sound too bizarre. Not at all. And, and in fact, I am absolutely convinced that this was intentional because mm. the director, Howard Becker, is from New York. And I'm absolutely convinced that he has spent time and time, you know, again, walking down the streets, looking at the architecture. And I remember one of my kind of early filmmaking um, classes I went to, people saying, if you can't make a movie look great whilst in New York, you cannot be a filmmaker. Yeah. Uh, I think this, because, you know, the lines and, and the way in which, you know, the, the streets are being literally kind of, uh, you know, sandwiched you know, by the tall buildings and, and the windows reflection. And, and of course, the nighttime with um, the reflections on, on the wet pavement, it, it's, it's all there. Uh, and I think that to me is sometimes what's lacking in movies where they don't actually use uh, the, sur the surroundings as part of the ex visual experience. Yeah, and I think we should probably say that uh, people might be getting the impression that this is uh, uh, what, what sort of film this is. This is a pr police procedural film, mm -hmm. but it's a police procedural film with a twist. It's all about a, a series of murders. Uh, Al Pacino is the lead cop who's trying to find the murderer, and without giving the plot too much of the plot away, he ends up having a very erotic, not pornographic, but a very erotic relationship with one of the suspects, played by Ellen Barker. Um, who is, is a very, very, very striking sort of eighties femme fatale, isn't she? She's got mm. the she's got the eighties hair, she's got the eighties shoulder pads, um, the way she dresses. You know, it, it's it's a remarkable image. Um, and there's a ma there is a massive, massive twist at the end, as you would expect. But the relationship again between Ellen Barkin and Al Pacino. I mean, let, let's face it, Al Pacino isn't your typical sort of superhero cop, is he? He's just a, a nondescript guy wearing a scruffy suit. Um, you know, he, he's not particularly muscly. He's not particularly chiselled. He's just an ordinary guy, and yet. The, the sort of chemistry between these two, you can genuinely believe that they're having this incredibly passionate affair with each other. And it really sucks you in. The acting was superb. Oh, indeed. And, you know, in terms of um, the threat through, you know, what we understand and what is interesting about the character of Al Pacino, you're right, is flawed. He makes mistakes, actually gets it wrong, you could argue, yeah, you know, yeah. uh, all the way till very end with, with a major twist and so on. Uh, he's taking risks, he's not listening to the sound of device and so on. And it's all to do with um, him and his colleagues, you know, from the NYPD, who are trying to track down this serial killer who's using the Lonely Hearts kind of uh, page in uh, the local newspaper 
to attract, track down, and obviously um, kill um, individuals. And what you have, therefore, is this idea of there's an inquiry. There's, there's, um, you know, people are trying to find a murderer, but everything is suggesting that this is not going to end well at all. Yeah, and it's. It's, it's interesting as well, when you watch that trailer, um, I mean, I've seen this film so many times now, Pascal. It's one of my favourite films of all time. I, I watch it at least once a year. I originally went to see it at the cinema with my mother. Um, I think I was still at university, and we, uh-huh. just went, we just went to the cinema together to see it. And when you watch the trailer, there's actually quite a few scenes in the trailer that aren't in the film, which I actually quite found quite surprising. Right at the start of the trailer, there's a bit where Al Pacino is shouting down a bloke in a white suit, getting him to to drop his gun. And that is actually from a deleted scene, believe it or not. Now, when they showed this film on television, they actually put those deleted scenes back in. And there's also a scene um, involving um, Pacino's ex-wife in the film, which also reappears in the TV version. But they obviously decided to edit that out of the um, cinematic version, perhaps just to tighten the film up and, and to make the pacing a bit better. But I do find it's quite interesting. There's quite a few trailers that we've seen as we've been doing these reviews, Pascal, which include deleted scenes within the trailer. I always find that quite interesting. Yeah, it's all about the timing and the sequence mm-hmm. of events. The trailer is cut before the movie sometimes is even yeah. finished yeah. with a view of getting um, you know, pre-sales and distributors rights and that kind of things. So, I mean, once you've given me the, uh, you know, the segue into marketing, on reflection, uh, this will have been, I think, a difficult movie to market. And they, they went ahead, which we're going to, and whether we're going to describe in a moment, but you know, let me take you back to the 1989, the 1990, depending where you are in the world. But this movie was up against Black Rain, another wonderful movie using Cityscape, uh, Johnny Handsome. Um, kickboxer with Van Damme, Eric the Viking, Still Magnolias, Best of the Best, Family Business, Driving Miss Daisy, and so it goes on. So you, you have competition for someone's times and and wallet. It's also a movie that was released many years um, after a perceived failure on the part of Al Pacino and producers. I'm talking about the movie um, Revolution, which so, mm. shows what a hard business movie making is because this is a man I gave us you know, Godfather, Serpico, he gave us um, Dog Day Afternoon, if I'm not mistaken, Scarface and so on. And there's a minor blip, you know, in, on, on the CV revolution. And the poor guy is literally out, to, out of work for four years until he's given the gig for A Sea of Love. Yeah, and it's fascinating, the, the fact that he was almost washed up wasn't he he was he'd done a bit of stage work in the theaters in in new york but i think he thought that his career was over until this script arrived but if you actually look at the marketing of this um the posters in particular the posters in particular even though he'd been out of the scene for four and four odd years you can tell that they were playing upon his gravitas mm. because the posters, both the international US version and the um, UK version, at the top it just says Pacino, not Al Pacino, just Pacino, and and that shows you the strength of him as a personal brand, despite the fact that he'd been absent from films for four and a half years, he was still a strong enough draw to effectively make the marketing about him. Well, it's interesting you mentioned a moment ago about deleted scenes 
and you could argue almost the confusion between the cinema version, a TV version, then the extras on the DVDs and the Blu-rays and so on. Uh, by the way, on that very point, I think the scene with his ex-wife, it's a real shame they was taken out because it's a scene that is maybe a couple of minutes long, no more, where the poor guy is literally kind of breaking heart out saying you know i've got nothing mm. you know literally mm. all i've got is this job and i'm not even sure that i'm doing it well but i've got nothing mm. uh, you know i live in a, in a crappy flat i don't i don't see you i don't see the kids i don't have a career to speak of it's really quite interesting and in the same i'm, I'm using the term confusion perhaps in a very harsh way but if you think about even the, the posters and the artwork there seems to be a version for for the us and a version for the uk international because uh, back at the times where Sea of Love was uh, available for rental, I was working, I remember, in the video store. And the, the, the memory that I had was something very, very red. And the picture of Al Pacino and Dylan Barkin in almost like kind of uh, through a land, slightly distorted. Mm, but I've mm. never seen the US poster um, before. It's just fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I recognize the uh, the UK poster more, but I do like the US poster better uh, because it, it's got Al Pacino f as the cop with his gun pulled, but then he's framed in the background by a sort of faded image of him and Ellen Barking just about to get into that amazing sort of one of the best kisses in history, I think somebody uh, <laughs> described it as. Uh, and again, you know, we're talking about 30-odd years ago now and posters were so, so important. And the strap line, in search of a killer, he found someone who was either the love of his life or the end of it, you know incredible stuff and what i also liked about this particular um uh marketing campaign was lobby cards mm. tell me about lobby cards oh these were the days these was the corridor of dreams you yes. actually walk towards whichever room you know you were going to the screening room you were going to because you were either you know being enticed and and encouraged to plan your next visit or you were given a little glimpse into the movie as you're, you know, kind of making slow progress. Um, nowadays, I think they don't do that. They just have posters coming soon. But those lobby cards, I mean, uh, here's, you know, kind of what I do. When I go into um, any kind of, uh, you know, flea markets or vidgonia, as they call them in France, I look for people selling lobby cards. I, I collect them. And recently, I found two lobby cards for uh, True Romance, which I was very, very <laughs> pleased about. But this is what we did back then. You know, we kept the the printed materials. We, if you were good enough to, or you, you know, the cinema manager, you would literally find a way to get the posters given to you once the movie has given out. But the lobby cards are our selection of stills to essentially complement, you know, what the trailer's done, what the poster's done, what, you know, the, the tagline you, you just read out um, is doing. And every single one of them that we're able to find has, of course, Al Pacino in it yes. as a still, and of course his name appearing in big, you know, a typeface. I don't know which font it is, but uh, it's very, very big. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and picking up on something that you said as well is this whole fact that Sea of Love effectively redefined the role of the macho man and the femme fatale. And there was a whole series of movies that came out during the 1990s that you can actually track, trace back to Sea of Love. Now, a lot of people probably haven't seen Sea of Love. It's not one of the most uh, famous films ever. I think 
people like you and I who've who know it and have seen it and remember seeing it at the cinema it will always be one of the best films ever but if you haven't seen it it's probably one that you've never heard of which is a bit bizarre but Basic Instinct you know that film with Sharon Stone and Michael Douglas very similar sort of feel you know it's a, a mm. cop going up against a very sexually liberated woman that you can trace that right back to Sea of Love. You know, Sharon Stone's character is not dissimilar to the way Ellen Barkin played the role in Sea of Love. And you've also got Final Analysis, Sliver, The Last Seduction. Wow. Yes, All yes. of those films that came out in the 1990s have a macho man, whether it's a cop or, or a detective or whatever, and that very sexually liberated woman who is the femme fatale and and you can trace it all the way back to uh, sea of love but also i guess you've got that as we said before that fact that they're redefining the macho man so Pacino isn't your sort of chiseled superhero like Arnold Schwarzenegger. He sort of paved the way, didn't he, for people like Keanu Reeves and the the sort of the normal guy as opposed to the the guy built like a a brick privy. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. Yeah, we know who you're talking about here. Uh, I think it's fascinating because you're absolutely right. People will often, you know, say, "Oh, it all began with basic basic instinct." This idea of the fanta town, but um, that's why it was so important to talk about Sea of Love, and because to you and I can reminisce about it. What I will say is, if I could quickly take you to talking about the music mm. and the song Sea of Love, mm. of course, because it is about what it's about. What is interesting is the French title um, of Sea of Love is Melody for a Murder. Ah. And I think, you know, if you look at the words, it actually, I think, um, pays more homage to to the music and to that song than maybe the movie. Because if you don't know the, the track at all, it could be forgiven to think, actually, you know, going back to the UK International Poster, it could you could be forgiven to think it's a romantic story. Yeah. Sea of love, a red poster, a couple hugging each other. It, it doesn't really sell the, the danger, the threat, and so on and so forth. And and I wonder whether, again, with hindsight, which is a wonderful thing, you know, these were di different times altogether. The marketing campaign could have lent more on the track itself, the music. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I hadn't realised that about the French title, but actually the French title makes more sense, doesn't it, than than the, the UK title. I mean, it's interesting. Also, I went to see this film with my mother, um, talking about back in 1990. So when I went to see the film, I hadn't heard the track Sea of Love, you know, uh, do you remember when we met? <laughs> Da, da 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 you'll be my pet whatever it was and 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 um uh um they do a fabulous uh, scene in the film where pacino and goodman effectively sing that song out of tune and again that bit the charisma charisma between the two of them there is great now the original was sung by phil phillips and the twilights but there's also an version right. at the end of the film which was a more market a more jazzy version by by tom waits but when i went to see this film in 1990 i'd never heard of the song so again you know it's obviously 
it was back in the 60s and people who were watching this film in the 90s who were middle-aged might have remembered recognized the song i didn't because i was still quite young at the time so people watching the film today probably have even less uh, chance of recognizing that song so i'm actually buying into what you're saying and wondering whether actually in hindsight they should have called this film what was it the melody of Mu- the the uh, murder of melody murder or something? for melody yeah murder, murder for, for melody, melody. Yeah, yeah that's really really interesting the, I mean, for me, that as I'm looking and reflecting on what I'm going to call the marketing pack, you know, you you, you have the posters, and because yeah. of the elongated distribution uh, timescale, you know, from 1890, I can see why they would change the artwork and design. But I'm going to go with you. Which I, I think the original US one better yes. to actually convey the feeling of the thriller, the the neo noir kind of atmosphere capturing. A th- think they didn't use New York sufficiently in the marketing effort. Yes. They didn't use the um you know the the music and the track Sea of Love sufficiently. But what they did very well, I I believe, is the trailer. If you've seen the trailer or the 30 second TV spots as they often did, you would definitely would want to go and see um the movie. And I think for 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 the filmmakers to almost ignore the fact that there was a, a blip in Pacino's career with Revolution and say it's still you know going to be the guy uh, to get you know bombs and seats and to essentially you know make this movie a, a, a commercial success to the point where a bit later when it was released more internationally, they even went ahead and produced a 14-minute documentary, which is actually very, very interesting. And in, in, in a funny kind of way, the documentary does more to showcase New York and, and, the, and the song itself. Yeah, and, and I think we also need just to mention Pacino as an actor. Now, you, you'll correct me um, if I'm wrong here because you know more about filmmaking than I do, but Pacino, I believe, is what is termed a method actor, which means that he immerses himself into the role to such an extent that it, he will stay in character even on set between takes. So if the cameras aren't rolling and somebody goes up to Pacino and talks to him, he will be Frank Keller at that moment in time. He won't revert to Al Pacino. He will Mm. be Frank Keller all the time. And that documentary again says he became so immersed in the character that he just reacted to anything as that character would now in the final scene of the film him and ellen barking are walking down the street in new york now they did fill the street with some extras who knew what was going on but as you as you would expect um, new york is a massively massively busy city so there's quite a lot of just normal people walking down the street as well and there's a moment where Al Pacino bumps into a member of the public and the member of the public bumps into him so hard that he basically goes, he falls back away from Ellen Barking, but his recovery is incredible. He just basically shifts back and carries on talking as if the line was just so natural. Now, normally they would have retaken that scene and made sure they got it right without him bumping into the the local, but he recovered from it so well that it made it look so natural that they actually left, I guess, the duff take in because it was so good that it made it look even better than had it not been there. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And, you know, I, I've just realised, so we're talking about Sea of Love, the, the movie that made that transition from the 80s to the 90s from the action hero style and the femme fatale. But, of course, by accepting this role after a four-year 
Gab. A few years later, Scent of a Woman. Yeah. And the Oscars. Yeah. And and I guess just to finish that bit off, you know, the fact that he immerses himself so much in the in the role to me is the ultimate example of what I've always said from a marketing point of view. Marketing is about having a deep, almost obsessive understanding of your customer. Pacino had a deep, almost obsessive relationship with his character to the extent that he became that character. And that is how he managed to put in such an incredible performance. Roger Edwards, thank you so much for your fine selection once again for film marketing. Seal of Love, 1989 or 1990, depending on which territory you, you were into. Um, a movie that if you've not seen it or it's been a while, we can highly recommend you go back and, and look at it. And then you can come back and, of course, listen to the, the marketing elements again in, in the context of the film. And I think we've done a very good job to not give anything away as well. So you can watch it. No spoilers uh, on this occasion. Absolutely right. Still one of my favourite movies. Absolutely superb. Everyone, this was episode number 82. Thank you so much for your support. And Roger, thank you so much for being a wonderful co-host. As always, please leave comments and suggestions in usual places. To the next one, go out there and make sure your marketing is on right. I was Pascal Fintoni and he was Roger Edwards. Mm-hmm.